This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week we've got another message from our Acts of the Apostles series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. something big in your life, something miraculous, something dramatic even, and then seen him actually do it. You've actually seen God answer a prayer of yours in a big and significant way, something that he may not have even done had you not prayed. Anything come to mind for you? For me, as I was reflecting on this question this week, lots of examples came to mind, but in terms of thinking of big, dramatic-type stuff, I was reminded of a couple stories from many years ago in my pastoral journey. Well, maybe 10 years ago or so, there was this boy in our church, different church that I was serving at at the time, that was deathly ill, maybe one years old, if that, at the time of baby. His sodium levels were crashing and his brain was swelling. And it looked like he wasn't going to make it. If he did make it, we were told he was going to have significant brain damage, may never learn to walk, talk, all those kinds of things. Parents were in a small group. They're beside themselves. The church, the people who knew them, they're beside themselves. But we committed to praying for this baby boy, baby Caleb. I remember going to visit the family in the hospital and actually laying my hands on baby Caleb and praying with the family, praying with the father and the mother, and inside kind of thinking, oh, this doesn't look good. I don't know if God's going to come through for us in the way that we want him to, but we're going to pray anyway. We pray, we pray, and we pray. Ten years later, that baby boy is a healthy ten-year-old boy, a Leafs fan, so clearly God, you know, has blessed him doubly. Uh, being misled, some might say, but he's healthy. And only within a matter of months was he able to recover and come out of the hospital. He was in the ICU, all this. It was incredible. And the church celebrated as we saw God heal this precious baby boy. And then I think of Norm. Norm was a 50-year-old man. He's now gone. A 50-ish-year-old man and had a whole bunch of health complications. I've talked about Norm before. You may uh, have heard me tell this story even, but he had some sort of health condition that ended up putting him in a coma. He's in the ICU. Doctors are telling us limited brain activity. It's a matter of time until there's no brain activity. He's not going to make it. Church commits again to praying for him. We're going to pray. We're going to fast. We're going to do all that we can. We're going to beg God to heal Norm. I remember going to visit Norm a couple times. One time in particular, went in with, some of you might know, Ed Wilms. Ed had been our executive director for our denomination at the time. We worked together at the same church, and we went in, and we laid hands on him. And as we prayed, never had this happen before. I hope I have it happen again, because it was incredible. As we're praying for him, in a coma, his eyes open, and he looks at us, and he says, Hi, Jeff. 
Hi, Ed. Like, uh, doctor, someone, <laughs> medic, <laughs> we don't know what's going on here. And within a matter of days, Norm was discharged from the hospital and had several more years of life before he ended up passing away from something else. It was incredible. Church celebrated as God had healed Norm. There was this story people, people talked about our church as being the church that raised that guy from the dead. <laughs> it's not really true. He wasn't dead, but people thought he was dead. People had given up on Norm and thought, this is it for Norm. And reflected back on those stories. I was like, man, those, those are stories. I, I prayed for lots of people that haven't been healed. I think maybe you, you know what that feels like too, but those couple stories in particular, they were really faith-building stories, reminders that God actually does hear our prayers. And listen, and sometimes He does dramatic things like this. He comes through in dramatic ways. I was thinking about it this week too, just it's not as dramatic in terms of a healing story, but some of you will remember that a few weeks ago we stood up before you, I stood up before you and said, hey, you know, as a church, um, we've lost our storage space. And uh, for years we've been able to keep our stuff in the back uh, of the school, and that meant we didn't have to have a truck, and we have to figure all those types of things out, but we, we got the boot. We can no longer store our stuff here, so we're coming to you, asking you to prayerfully consider if you might contribute towards the purchase of a truck. Christine just talked about this. And honestly, when we threw that out there, I thought, I don't know. I don't know how people are going to respond. My faith is weak. Well, three weeks later, we've raised almost $23,000. God provided through the generosity of people like you because we prayed and we said, God, this is in your hands. You care about this stuff more than we do. This is your church. If we need a truck, it's on you to make it possible for us to get a truck. We have the funds. Now we're waiting for God to lead us to the right truck because it's tricky to find a truck. Sometimes God does this, doesn't he? He answers our prayers in big and dramatic ways, and it builds our faith. Have you experienced this in your life, dramatic or not? An answer to prayer, something that God did in your life that he may not have done had you not prayed and asked him to do that thing. This morning, in our journey through the book of Acts, if you're new, we've been journeying through the book of Acts. This tells the story of the early church for the better part of the past year. This morning, in Acts chapter 12, we find one of these stories. God doing something in direct response to the church's prayers. An only God moment. Something that only God could have done. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me. If you're not already open, Acts chapter 12. Lara read a section of this for us, but we're actually going to work our way through the entire chapter as best we can here this morning. Chapter 12. Of Acts of the Apostle, where in verses 1 through to 5, before we get to the story that Lara just read for us, we find some really important context for Peter's miraculous escape from prison. Let's look at that context together in verse 1, where it says this About that time, meaning back in Jerusalem, where the church's headquarters were, if you were with us the past couple weeks, you remember that the story of Acts took them away from Jerusalem as they were focusing on reaching the Gentiles in different geographical areas. Okay, so now we're back in Jerusalem where the head, headquarters of the church was located. King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. Now, who is King Herod Agrippa? Because if you're a Bible person at all, you know that there's a few King Herod mentioned. So which one is this? Well, this King Herod, King Herod Agrippa, king of Judea, he's actually the grandson of of Herod the Great. Now, King Herod the Great 
was the king when Jesus was born. And you might remember the story in Matthew 2 of when Jesus was born and King Herod the Great found out about it that he was he felt threatened. He felt like his throne was threatened. So he ordered the death of all male children under the age of two in and around Bethlehem. That's this guy's grandpa. <laughs> and then also, on top of that, not only does he have that in his family line, but he also is the nephew of a guy named Herod Antipas. Now, Herod was a governor, kind of leader in Judea area when Jesus was crucified. And he played a pretty significant role in the crucifixion of Jesus, and actually was responsible, if you know John the Baptist, was responsible for John the Baptist's beheading. <laughs> so that's King Herod Agrippa's family line. Wonderful family, somebody you'd want to go for dinner with after church on a Sunday. No, no doubt. That's his family tree. And King Herod Agrippa, as it turns out, is not so much better than his forefathers, those who went before him. Look at what he did, verse 2. He, King Herod Agrippa, had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword, meaning he was likely beheaded, because that's, that was the most common form of execution in that day. He killed the apostle James, or had the apostle James killed, beheaded with a sword. <laughs> now, Luke doesn't give us details. He kind of just drops this nugget in there. He doesn't explain the details around James's death, but... But make no mistake about it, for the original reader of this story, they knew this was a big deal. Oh my goodness. The Apostle James has been killed. He's been martyred. Like uh, others before James had been killed and martyred as well. If you remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and others who had been executed or martyred, persecuted as well. But this is the first time we see an Apostle being executed. Now an Apostle was one of the twelve who provided leadership to the church, the kind of God-ordained people to provide leadership to the church. The first time we see one of those men being executed, seeing James being killed, an apostle being killed, and it just shows for us the escalation now of violence towards the church. Well, even the apostles aren't saved. People might have thought, oh, God will never let anything bad happen to the apostles because they're God's main men. <laughs> it's like, actually, that's not the way this works. So James, the apostle James, is killed by King Herod Agrippa. Verse 3, when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter, kind of the head of the apostles, the main leader of the church. Right? He saw how much this kind of increased his poll numbers how this increased his popularity amongst the Jewish people. And he's like, well, if they like me killing James, then how much more are they going to like me if I go after Peter? And so he had Peter arrested. This took place, Luke says, during the Passover celebration. They imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads and four soldiers each as they rotated in and out. Herod intended to bring Peter out for trial, public trial, after Passover, or as we might call it, like a, a show trial, where Herod would make a spectacle out of Peter and likely end up having him executed, all in an effort to kind of increase his own popularity amongst the Jewish people. That was what Herod was intending to do here. Okay, so that's some of the context here for this story of this incredible, miraculous escape from prison, where things are really bleak for the church incredibly deep. We've seen it be bad before, but this is about as bad 
as it's ever been for the church up until this moment in the book of Acts. We've seen, we've seen others being imprisoned and persecuted before, but now we're seeing the, the Jewish people, the, this unhinged king going after their own people. It's next level bad for the church. So Peter, you know, he's arrested. He's put in this maximum security prison with four guards, soldiers guarding him, two chains to him. Verse 6 tells us that he had two guards chained to him. Normally there's maybe one guard chained to the person. Two standing outside of the prison. It was excessive. It was excessive the way they treated Peter, the way they guarded him, because Peter has a history of miraculously escaping from prison, doesn't he? If you know the story of that. They're like, we're not going to let this happen again. We're going to make sure Peter goes nowhere. But take a step back with all that context in mind and put yourself in the shoes of those who were part of the early church. How do you think the early church felt in this moment? Pretty hopeless, I would say, right? They just saw James get killed. Now Herod's going after Peter, and he's chained to two guards. There's two guards outside. They're rotating in and out every four hours or so. There's no chance in the world that Peter is escaping this. He's going to be killed. He's going to be beheaded just like James was. The church would have felt completely hopeless and like there was absolutely nothing that they could do about it. Because there was nothing they could do about it. You ever found yourself in a situation like this? Maybe not with a friend or someone you love being imprisoned, about to be executed. That's probably not something that we've had to endure, I hope. But we know what it's like to endure what feels like hopeless situations, don't we? And Pablo was here just last week from Ukraine, if you were with us, talking about a very hopeless situation in Ukraine right now with the war. It feels like there's no way out. There's no redemption possible here. There's no way for things to be made right in Ukraine. It feels hopeless, doesn't it? We know what that feels like, too, on a, on a smaller scale. We're not talking about war and imprisonment, but we know what it's like to feel stuck in a financial situation. <laughs> that feels totally hopeless. There's no way out. Too much debt. No way that we can dig ourselves out of this financial situation. We know what it's like relationally or in a marriage, even perhaps, to know what that feels like to feel hopeless in a marriage. or There's no way for us to fix the damage that's been done. We know as parents sometimes <laughs> with our kids, it feels hopeless. There's nothing we can do to fix our kids. There's nothing we can do to make things right for our kids. We know many of us, those of us who struggle with mental illness, we know what it's like to feel hopeless. There's no way out of this. We know what it's like. We know what the church felt like to some extent in this moment, don't we? We know what it's like to feel like we're without hope. So the question then is this. It's what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when there's nothing left for you to do? There's no possible way for you to fix the situation. There's no hope. There's no hope for you to come in and make things right. What do you do? when you don't know what to do. Who or what do you turn to? Look at what the church did when they didn't know what to do, when they felt hopeless in verse 5. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed 
very earnestly for him. What did the church do when they didn't know what to do? They prayed. They prayed. And, and not just a little bit, not just before they ate their meals, or before they went to bed, or as they thought about it during the day, but they prayed a lot. Luke says that they actually prayed earnestly. That's the word that he uses here. The word earnest in the Greek is actually a medical term that describes the stretching of a muscle to the max. The same word, actually, that describes Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's arrested, he sweat drops of blood. That's the kind of prayer that the church is engaging in here. A max effort, all-out, earnest prayer. Like, imagine at the gym. If you, if you go to the gym, I don't know what it's like to go to the gym. But if you've been to a gym, I've heard stories. Uh, the guy in the corner who's lifting weights, and maybe he's a little dramatic, overly dramatic about it, but he's grunting and groaning and Aah! And everyone's looking at him like, chill out. It's that kind of prayer. Max effort, going for it. Prayer, lifting as much weight as you possibly can in the gym. This is the kind of prayer that the church is using. Max effort, around-the-clock prayer. Prayer without ceasing. I love the juxtaposition that Luke, the author of Acts, creates for us here as well in this story. It's really interesting when we take a step back and look at this. We're on, on one side, you've got King Herod. Right? He's got all the earthly power one could have, right? Military power. The power of the people. Popularity amongst the people. The power of the sword. He's got all the power, earthly speaking. And then on the other side, you've got this church. Where from an earthly perspective, they had no power whatsoever. No military power. They're increasing in popularity amongst the people, but really the Jewish people, they weren't big fans. They have no influence, no power when compared to King Herod. But they didn't need earthly power, did they? Because you know the kind of power they had? They had the power of prayer. The power of God at work in and through the church to accomplish his purposes, which is far greater than any earthly power one could have. And they knew it, too. They knew that swords and trying to play political games was going to get them nowhere. But when they looked to Jesus to do what only Jesus could do, there was a chance that maybe Jesus would come through for them. So they prayed. Look at what happens next in this story as the church prayed. The night before, and now we're getting into the story that Lara just read for us, the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep. <laughs> I just press pause here for a moment. This is an interesting detail, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been arrested before and in chains and being told that you're going to be beheaded the next day. It only happened to me once, but uh, <laughs> no, we don't know what this is like, right? But if I were Peter in this moment, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to sleep very well that night, right? I wouldn't be able to fall asleep. The interesting detail Luke provides for us shows us that there's, there's not the typical signs of anxiety and fear that you might expect because he had placed his faith and trust in God to take care of him. And even if he died, and he could die, God was going to take care of him regardless. He's sleeping. He's about to be beheaded. He's like, I'm going to take a nap. He's asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers 
Others should guard the prison gate, which we've talked about, being heavily guarded. They don't want to repeat escape here with Peter. But then look at what happens. This is where it gets really interesting. Verse 7. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him. Now, two things that are crazy here. Probably more than just two things, but two things. First of all, there's an angel in the cell. How many of you have seen an angel appear in your bedroom before? I, I have not had this happen. Light everywhere. An angel in the room with me. What on earth? Peter must have been thinking, what was in that food they gave me last night if they fed him at all? But then second, that's the first thing. Just the fact that there's an angel in the room. The second thing that's crazy about this story is that the angel apparently punches Peter in the ribs. He struck him on the side, Luke tells us. How many of you remember the show Touched by an Angel from 25, 30 years ago, right, where an angel would appear and make everyone's problems go away? I think this would have made a pretty good episode. But instead of Touched by an Angel, it should be called Punched by an Angel, where the angel just punches people in the ribs and says, let's get dressed and get out of here. Because that's what happened in this story. It's crazy. Crazy. Reading on, the angel struck him on the side, punched him in the ribs to awaken him, and said, quick, Get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel told him, get up, get dressed, and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. The angel's in a hurry here, isn't he? Why is he in a hurry? He's an angel. He kind of should be able to control things, you might think. He's in a hurry. Verse 9. So Peter left the cell, following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision didn't realize it was actually happening. Because, of course, any normal person would be like, this isn't real. I'm about to wake up any minute. This isn't actually happening, right? He thought this was a vision or a dream, as we all probably would. Verse 10. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and this gate opened for them all by itself. Larry talked about the details. I, I find this detail in this story really interesting and almost humorous. But the iron gate, which would have been like the gate outside of the prison cell, kind of that last, if you can think of a maximum security prison and the, the fences that open, it's that gate that opened for, for them by itself. I think it's interesting that Peter <laughs> provided that information for us. Because imagine that Peter and the angel, they've just gone through everything they went through. The chains fell off, they got past the guards. You know, it's crazy. And then they get to the gate. And the angel's like, shoot! I forgot about the iron gate! And then guards come out and get him and take him back. They're like, sorry, I tried. <laughs> like, of course that wouldn't have happened because God was in this, right? God was going to take care of every detail. He's going to be faithful to uh, get Peter out of that jail cell through to the end. He was not going to abandon Peter at the last, last hour, the 11th hour. It's ridiculous, but we do this sometimes to ourselves, don't we? Or at least I do. We forget how God has led and guided and provided, how He's miraculously taken care of us up until this point, and we think when we get to a certain point in our journey that He's just going to abandon us and give up on us. That the iron gate's going to be locked. I knew it! I knew that God wasn't going to take care of me. I knew that God wouldn't provide. I knew this wasn't God's will. 
And we forget all the little things that God has done along the way to take care of us and that He's not going to abandon us at the 11th hour. He's going to be faithful. Paul talks about this in Philippians. He's going to be faithful to finish what He started. If He's in it, the iron gates are going to open. I need to be reminded of this in so many ways in my life, but as I mentioned about the trust earlier, <laughs> in the what I think is a miracle of provision, financial provision, and how God is taking care of our church and providing for our needs. But then when I go out with booty, and we've looked at one or two trucks, and we go, oh my goodness, they're way more money than we thought, and there's not ones that are suitable, and I start doubting again. I start thinking, God, we're not going to get a truck that's suitable. We're going to go into debt. We're going to this, and we're going to that. I start doubting. And as I read this story this week, I'm like, no, if God's in it, He'll provide the right truck for us. He'll take care of us. It's true in your life too, right? If God did it, whatever that iron gate is for you, He's going to unlock that for you. You have to trust Him through to the end. God's in it. He'll unlock the iron gates. What's the iron gate in your life that you lost faith in God about? So they pass through the gate started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left Peter, like Batman style. He's just gone, disappeared, turned around, whoa, he's not here anymore. Verse 11, Peter finally came to his senses. If it's not a dream, it's really true, this actually happened. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and what the Jewish leaders have planned to do to me. All this time, he's like, I'm, I'm going to wake up any moment. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to wake up. And then he realized that actually happened. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, who would have been wealthy, would have been wealthy enough to house everyone in her house, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered. For what? For prayer. Now, what time do you suppose it is when all this happens? We don't know the time, but we know that it's in the middle of the night. And that Peter goes to Mary's house, the mother of John Mark's, where all, where a whole bunch of people from the church are gathered, and they're doing what? At like, say, two in the morning. They're praying around the clock. Max effort prayer. The grunts and groans and the whole thing. Verse 13. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open him. And she recognized Peter's voice. She was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she went back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. Now, for those of you who maybe know your Bible a little bit, what's this remind you of? Anything? It's actually a flashback to Luke's account. Remember, Luke wrote Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. It, it's a flashback to Luke's account of the story of the empty tomb. In Luke 24. Well, who came to find the empty tomb? A bunch of women. Messengers appeared to women. They ran away from the tomb to go tell the men because the men couldn't believe it. It's Luke's little way of saying, look, the power of the resurrected Christ, the power of the Spirit is at work in and through His church. He's the one at work in this story. It's not just an angel. It's not random it's the power of the resurrected Jesus at work in and through his church. Pretty cool how Luke connects those two stories. 
But how did the church respond when Rhoda, this servant girl, went to tell them Peter standing at the door? I find it interesting. They said, you're out of your mind, they said. But she insisted, they decided, it must be an angel. It must be his angel. Because that's more plausible than Peter actually standing at the door, right? Oh, it must be his angel. It's a strange conclusion to draw. But think about this. Think about their response for a moment. Remember, this church in this house, these people, these followers of Jesus, they've been praying around the clock earnestly for what? For Peter's release. They've been begging God to do what only God can do. But then when Peter shows up as an answer to their prayer, they're like, nope, there's no chance that he actually answered our prayer. We didn't actually think he was going to answer our prayer. We're just praying because I don't know why. Maybe he will, but probably not. That's how little faith they actually had. They thought there was an angel at the door, at the gate, <laughs> not Peter himself. They couldn't believe it, even though they've been praying for so long before. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this little tidbit of information, this piece of the story, strangely encouraging. Because <laughs> there are times that I pray for things, whether it be healing, someone's sick, reconciliation in a marriage where it just seems hopeless, salvation for someone who's just so far from God, and they're like, well, I don't know, they'll never change. It doesn't seem like they'll ever change. There's times that I pray for them, but internally I'm like, nope, never going to happen. But I pray anyway. You do that? Those things you pray for that you're kind of thinking, I don't, I don't know if this is ever going to happen, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's what the church did here. They didn't actually believe that God was going to answer their prayers, apparently. But they did it anyway. And then God did. Listen. Don't let your lack of faith keep you from praying big prayers. Don't let your lack of faith keep you from praying big prayers because you never know when you're going to go to the gate of your life or you're going to have your servant girl, however this metaphor plays out, to the gate of your life and Peter's going to be standing at the door. God will answer your prayer. It's going to be so hard for you to believe. You're going to try to find other explanations. It must be his angel. It must have been this. It must just be a coincidence. But it's actually going to be God answering your prayer. Don't let your lack of faith keep you from praying big prayers because you never know when God might come through and do what only God can do. If the church had not prayed, this may not have happened. Where's that true maybe in our life? Where are we not praying because of a lack of faith? And God's like, I want to do so much in your life. You've got to seek me. You've got to pray. You've got to pray. Verse 16. Meanwhile, while they're debating if it's an angel at the door or not, Peter continued knocking. That loser, he's stuck outside, banging on the door. Where are you? Let me in the house. They're trying to kill me out here. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. They're like, he's not an angel. Flesh and blood, it's him. He motioned for them to be quiet and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James, not the one that had just been killed, of course, a different James, brother Jacob James, and the other brothers, what had happened, he said. And then he went to another place. He went into hiding. And he became Israel's most wanted. <laughs> Remember America's most wanted? Speaking of old TV shows, Peter would have made 
the cut for Israel's most wanted, I think, in this moment. Verse 18, we'll wrap up here with this. Um, this part of the story. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Now, we don't, Luke doesn't tell us what happened with the, with the soldiers, if they just kind of slept through all this, or if they're blinded by the light, or we don't know how they didn't know what had happened, but somehow they were incapacitated. And now they're realizing, wait, Peter's gone. Something happened. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death as if it was their fault. They're like, we were just sleeping, and then there was a light, and then he's gone. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay at Caesarea for a while, where eventually he died. This is a whole other story, which we won't get into this morning in the last five or six verses of chapter 12. But this is a crazy story, isn't it? The story of Peter's miraculous escape from prison as God heard the earnest prayers, the match effort prayers of the church, and stepped in to what felt like a hopeless situation and did what only God could do, set Peter free. He thought he was a goner the next day, sword to the head. But now he's in hiding. God saved him from certain death. So what do we do <laughs> with this story? How do we apply this to our lives? So we talked about a couple ways already, I think, that we can apply this story to our, our own stories, right? Whether we're talking about the difference between earthly power and spiritual power and the power of prayer in our lives, whether we're talking about faith and trusting that God will see us through the iron gates of our lives, or whether we're talking about doubt, and even as we pray for big things, doubting that God will actually come through for us and hear us and answer our prayers in the ways that we want Him to, but we still pray. Anyway, there's lots that we could talk about, but at the end of the day, the, the main thing that this story speaks to is simply this. The power of prayer. The power of prayer. Not just any kind of prayer, but earnest prayer. Desperate prayer. Max effort all-out prayer, just like we see from the church here in Acts chapter 12, where we beg God to do what only God can do, even if we're not sure that He's actually going to do the thing that we're hoping and praying that He will do. That kind of prayer, earnest prayer, is powerful. It can literally change the world. Prayer is powerful for at least two reasons, and we see some of this in the story, two things I, I think that we need to grapple with as we consider the power of prayer in our own lives and in our church. The first thing is this, is that prayer is a powerful weapon in our spiritual battle against Satan and the angels of hell. Which I know as I say that might sound strange to some of us, especially if you're newer to faith, newer to the faith conversation. You think about this cosmic spiritual battle with Satan on one side and God on the other. It's hard to wrap your head around it because we can't see it with our own two eyes, but it's real. In fact, it's more real than what we do see with our own two eyes. Paul talked about this last week. Pablo talked about this last week, didn't he? About the reality of the war that we're all in the spiritual battle that we all find ourselves in, and that we all have an enemy named Satan 
who is hell-bent on our destruction and our um, falling away from God and stepping outside of His will for our lives. The Bible talks a lot about this battle. Ephesians 6, verse 12 says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The church understood this. Their battle was not against King Herod Agrippa or the Jewish leaders. But it's against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world, spiritual forces at work around us in the heavenly realms. The, the Bible is crystal clear about this, that we are in a spiritual battle each and every day. And you know what our two greatest weapons are in that spiritual battle? There it is. Scripture. God's Word, the truth, meditating on that, knowing it, memorizing it, claiming it over our lives. Scripture and prayer. Scripture and prayer are the two most powerful weapons that we have in our spiritual battle against hell and death and Satan himself. We see the reality of this battle, I think, applied pretty heavily in our story here in Acts 12. Don't we? Where this angel which means warrior, by the way, the God's warrior, messenger of God. He comes to get Peter out of jail, and he's in a hurry. Well, why is he in a hurry? You could say, well, he doesn't want him to get caught by the other guards. Yeah, maybe. But it makes me wonder about what was happening in the spiritual realm at that moment that Luke didn't know about, didn't provide detail about. But the angel was in a hurry because maybe he understood there's more going on here than what can be seen. There's a spiritual battle that this angel had been engaged in that Peter and Luke and others did not even know about. Reminds me of a puzzling story from Daniel chapter 10, where this angel appears to, to Daniel after he'd been praying and fasting for 21 days, and this angel shows up and basically apologizes for being late to Daniel and says that he actually got held up by the spiritual prince of Persia and that he needed help from Michael the archangel in order to get to him after 21 days. Confusing, weird story. <laughs> but it points to the reality of the spiritual battle that we're all in. That we can't see, that we don't understand, that it's mysterious to us, confuses us, but it's real. More real than what we see with our two eyes. And it impacts what happens with our, what we see with our two eyes in more ways than we know. And so when we when we pray, and not just God help me prayers, or God maybe can you do this, or might you want to do that, but when we pray, max effort, earnestly, in the authority of Scripture, claiming the truth of God's Word over our lives, in alignment with God's will, in the name of Jesus, we are actually doing, believe it or not, spiritual warfare. When we pray that way, when we partner with God in that way, we're actually partnering with His armies by adding our weapon to the mix. The weapon of prayer. And so here's what this means for us. It means that when we pray, it's not just a religious routine or whatever. We're actually fighting. We're actually fighting. We're in a battle. We're fighting. We're doing warfare for our kids. Every time we pray for our kids, we're doing warfare for our marriage, for our church. When we bring these things before God and say, would you have your way, your kingdom come, your will be done in these situations, in these people's lives. We're 
asking God to do what only He can do when we pray. It's warfare. And prayer is a powerful weapon in it. We need to learn to use it more effectively. Second thing that we see in this story about prayer and the power of prayer is simply this, is that prayer changes things. Prayer is a powerful weapon, but prayer also changes things. I remember hearing that statement. You might have heard that statement, prayer changes things before. I remember being uh, in New York City after 9-11, six months after 9-11, and partnering with this organization, we would go out and we literally would wear like uh, little aprons that said, prayer changes things on it. And on the back, can I pray for you? And we'd go and stand in the street corner. It's not street preaching or anything. I'd just stand there and trust that God would bring people to us if they needed prayer, and we'd just pray for them. And I remember being out there for an afternoon, and I prayed the whole time for people. People lined up for prayer because they knew, man, I, if prayer changes things, let's pray. <laughs> if what you're saying is true, that God is for me and God wants to change my life, God wants to change the reality of the brokenness of our world, then we got to pray. Prayed with people all day. It's incredible. Prayer changes things. It's true. And listen, there are things that God wants to do in the world and in our lives and in our church that He will not do if we do not pray. I believe that's true. Let me say that again. There are things that God wants to do in your life and in the world and in our church that He will not do if you do not pray. Acts 12, the church doesn't pray here. Did Peter get released from prison? We don't know for sure, but probably not. Which I know raises some questions for us about God's sovereignty and how God works in the world and what the role of prayer is really is, and what's the point of prayer if God's in control and he's going to do what he wants to do? Anyway, and those are those are really good questions, complicated questions, questions that we can't fully know the answers to and certainly can't address fully here this morning. But here's what we do know in response to those questions. It's that somehow, in some way, as much as it's a mystery to each and every one of us, in God's sovereignty, he has chosen to include us and our prayers in His plan for the world. He's chosen that in His sovereign plan. Almost like He's limited His power to some extent to our prayers, inviting us to partner with Him. Because there are things that He wants to do in the world that He will not do if we do not pray. Why, in part, we see Jesus inviting us to pray in the Lord's Prayer the way that He does. We read this earlier and I referenced it just a few moments ago when Jesus called us to pray, your kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, why would Jesus invite us to pray that prayer? It's because there are things happening in the world that are clearly outside of God's will. The world is not as it should be. And so we're to pray that they would be as God wants them to be. That his kingdom would come, that heaven would come to earth, and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's because Jesus knew in inviting us to pray that prayer that prayer actually somehow, mysteriously, it actually changes things. And so we pray with that confidence and that faith knowing that prayer actually changes things. Think back to those stories I mentioned earlier about baby Caleb and Norm not because I prayed for them, there's nothing special about me, but I, I do wonder what might have happened in these people's lives had the church not rallied around 
Would God have healed them? Would Kayla be alive today as a 10-year-old Leafs fan? What would Norm's last years of life look like? We don't know. We can't know. But we can know today that prayer does change things. And that there's more Caleb stories and Norm stories and truck stories and other stories ahead of us if we seek his will first, if we pray. So, as we wrap up our time together thinking about the power of prayer in, in light of this story, um, the question I want to ask you is this. Is where are you feeling hopeless right now? I asked this question earlier, but let's think about that again for a moment. Where are you feeling hopeless in your life right now? Where you feel like, you know, I don't know what to do here. There's nothing more I can do to fix this or try. Where are you feeling hopeless? Is it in your marriage or relationship? Your finances? If you're a student, is it something going on at school with your grades or with your teacher or friends? Where are you feeling hopeless? The second question is, what might max effort prayer look like for you in that situation? What might max effort prayer look like for you? Might it look like fasting and praying? Fasting is a whole other (laughs) topic. But kind of putting aside the things that we depend on in this life, things like food or other things, and saying, no, I depend on you only. I'm going to fast. I'm going to seek your faith. Seek your will. Is it maybe taking just 15, 30 minutes out of your day to pray specifically about this thing? To bring it before the Lord and to, as best as you're able, say, I trust you with it. To go to Scripture, to read Scripture over that situation, that circumstance. To seek God and to not give up until there's an answer. What might max effort prayer look like in this hopeless situation? Because we believe in a God, we do, who brings the Peters to the doors of our life from time to time. And there are things that He wants to do in your life and in our world and in our church that He will not do unless we pray. A couple weeks ago, we had our prayer walk. We've done a couple prayer walks at the church. And um, would love to see when we do these again, more of us engaged in it. Because there are things that God wants to do through our church that he won't do unless we pray. We can scheme, we can plan, we can whiteboard, we can come up with the best mission statement in the world, and it's not going to make one iota of difference if we aren't praying people. And I say this as someone who is not very prayerful. I just feel super convicted about this, because we need to be a people who pray. So let's take a moment just now and just whatever that situation is, if there was something that came to mind for you, that hopeless situation, challenging situation, let's just take a moment to bring that to God in prayer together. And then I'm going to wrap things up with prayer. But just take a moment to, to pray through whatever it is that's on your heart here this morning in response to this.
God, we confess that there is just so much that we don't know or understand about the power of prayer and what's happening in the spiritual realm around us and how you hear our prayers, respond to our prayers, work through our prayers. There's so much mystery around this. We just don't get it. Like the early church, sometimes when you answer our prayers, we want to find other ways to explain it away by saying silly things like it must be his angel. <laughs> it must be a coincidence. It must be something else. It must be some other answer because there's no way that God would hear my prayer, that God would respond. But we thank you, Jesus, that through the cross and the resurrection, you made a way for us to have direct access to God the Father. And that God hears our prayers. That, Father, you, you hear us because of Jesus and what he has done for us. We're not coming to you out of any uh, confidence that we have in ourselves or our own ability to pray, to say the right words, or to do the right thing in the right order. That's not the way it works. Thank you for that. And you set us free from that, feeling like we have to follow religious customs and orders and pray prayers a certain way. No. You just want us to come before you as we are. And whatever this looks like for each and every one of us, max effort, seek after you first. Praying your will be done in, in earth, on earth, as it is in heaven. And so we laid before you these different circumstances and stories and challenges that we're facing, ways that maybe some of us are just feel hopeless. Whether we're talking about illness or parenting challenges or relational stuff or finances or whatever it may be. And we, we pray the Lord's Prayer over that. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven over those specific things. We pray that you give us the burden to pray to seek you, to not stop seeking you ever just because you don't answer us the way that maybe we want you to. That we would understand the privilege that prayer is to be able to come before the Father and know that you hear us because you love us. Make us a prayerful people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast.